Okay. So as I said before, I'm, I'm happy to be here. And uh, it's interesting because I really didn't plan to talk tonight. Um, but then again, recently I haven't been planning it. And people have been asking me because my first book. And they've been asking me, well, how's the book tour going? And I said, I have no idea what I'm doing, but it's going great. <laughs> and so there's something to be said about that. Okay, now I'm getting Jimi Hendrix feedback. Um, Anyway, hello, I think I'm all right. Um, so for those of you, everybody know who Jimi Hendrix was? Okay, I just, just want, you know, I know this is Northern California. I just want to check it out. Because we know him on the East Coast, too, because we had Woodstock on the East Coast. So anyway, um, so you probably, it's interesting because I've been doing this practice for over 30 years and about how this book came about, part of how it came about was about a year ago, I was invited by John Kabat-Zinn and his son Will um, to participate in this retreat that was being uh, held at, um, was it Mount, Mount Ida? Or, uh, what was the name of that place? Uh, Mount Madonna, yeah. So, and it was being filmed by 60 Minutes and, um, and, uh, Anderson Cooper was there, and so there were. So we were sitting; they were filming us and, and everything. And uh, it was interesting. We had a panel discussion, and there were seven of us. It, a lot of this stuff didn't get, uh, didn't make it to the program. They showed a little snippet on, on the internet. But the question was 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 posed to us. There were seven of us. What's to stop employers from? using mindfulness to exploit the employees. And, and I get a, a variation of that question all the time because people will say, well, you know, isn't it antithetical to be teaching mindfulness to athletes who are competing? And, you know, it's interesting that that, that question was posed to us and no one answered it. And I don't know if no one answered it because they were thinking like me. I can only tell you how I thought about it. I felt like, oh, I got the answer, but I don't want to give it because it makes us look disjointed because everybody out on, on that panel had a different idea of what mindfulness is or how mindfulness is used or what is mindfulness. And they're all right to some degree and they all have a purpose. But my, my view of mindfulness had the answer to the question of how do you um, bring mindfulness into an organization or use it in our own lives in a way that's, that's consistent with the teachings of the Buddha. Because that's how I, that's how I um, the mindfulness I teach or the process I teach has to do with, with the way the Buddhist teachings are concerned. And, and that is really simply not to get into it because my friends used to tease me about the five this, the seven that, and the eight this, because there's a lot of those, those things that are that are involved, but basically, um, when, when, when we think about mindfulness, mindfulness by itself is not enough. Because I worked in prison with, and where I come from in Boston, uh, there was a part of town that was known for cultivating bank robbers. It's called Chowstown. And they were very mindful and they were very focused. <laughs> 
but it wasn't right mindfulness and right concentration. So we should probably talk about what, what does that mean, uh, right? Mindfulness, and I'll talk about mindfulness a little bit, because mindfulness is one of these things, once again, you have everybody has their own definition, and there's some truth to it, but it's hard to capture what mindfulness is, because it, it's pre-verbal on some level. But we know, but hopefully we know what it is when we, when we see it. And so mindfulness, when I think about mindfulness, I think of uh, not forgetting. And, and part of, uh, you know, because I, after I, I wrote the book, I continued to study and, and, and I've been doing this mindfulness research for a lot of years. And each year I go through it and I come up with a definition and it's okay, but it's, I keep going deeper and deeper with it. So when we talk about not forgetting, we're really talking about steadiness of mind or not forgetting the object. And so in the case when we're sitting, the object is the body and the, or the, and the breath or the body or the breath. And so it's not forgetting the object and it's not forgetting the present moment. So steadiness of mind is really important. And another way of, of talking about steadiness of mind is concentration beyond likes and dislikes. So mindfulness is steadiness of mind, but and it's also not forgetting the present moment and staying, keeping the object of awareness in mind. Another way of looking at mindfulness is presence of mind. And presence of mind, I like to look at it as mirror mind. So part of mindfulness is like a mirror. It just reflects what's there. And the interesting thing about a mirror, and you could test this out if you go in the bathroom and look at yourself, I guarantee you, you're not going to see what's there. You're going to see what you think is there or what your conditioning is around, you know, what is beautiful, what's not beautiful, or, you know, we have people that have this, this, this um, self-image that's not consistent with how they really look, so they keep getting, uh, like uh, Michael Jackson was one of those folks, you know, they, they keep seeing their nose being, being too fat, no matter how much it gets altered, so there's this not seeing what's in, what's in front of us, and so this idea of, of allowing our minds to be like mirrors, so we allow things to speak to us. We're not, because a lot of our normal way of looking at things is we're interpreting and we're embellishing, we're projecting what's there. So what happens is so we, we, the mind, this is what the mind does, it, it, it pays attention to objects. And so it pays attention to an object and there's a very short period of time where it's just receptive, where there is that mirror mind, but then very quickly on, there's more of a reactivity aspect of the observation than the receptive quality of just seeing what's there. So there's no space between stimulus and response. So with mindfulness, we create space between stimulus and response so that we're able to have enough time to let the thing speak to us instead of projecting stuff on it and some of the things we project on it or some of the relationship that we have with it to prevent, that prevents us from experiencing what there, what is there is self-reference. Another part of it is like, what does this have to do with me? I, me, and mine. Uh, then another part of it is associative thinking. Oh, I remember this happened before and this is, you know, then you, then you start reliving the past or the, what I call the default future keep seeing things as if they're 
they were what happened before. And then there's abstract thinking, you start projecting into the future, what does this mean? And then there's getting more information, but the raw datum or the raw data is not perceived because it's, it's embellished, it's, it's projected, and there's an interpretation of what it means. And so mindfulness tries to go beyond all of that. So one part of it is steadiness of mind, not forgetting, and, 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 and observing the, the object and the immediacy of experience, but also it's just mirror mind, allowing it to speak to us without this overlay of, of interpretation and projections. And so the third part of it is mindfulness is not forgetting or remembering. What do we, what do we remember? We, we remember uh, what is skillful and what is unskillful. So on some level, it's understanding that the real, the real intention of mindfulness is suffering and the end of suffering. Seeing that things are impermanent, they arise and, and pass away. But part of that is just seeing what's there and letting it speak to us. Does that make any sense? And so, so we talk about not forgetting the present moment, the object. So you, you hold the object in mind, you keep coming back to the breath or to the body, and it keeps us in the moment. But then there's also just allowing ourselves to create that mirror mind where we just let things speak to us. And then there's the, the, the third thing is remembering what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, remembering um, that this is really about suffering and the end of suffering. Or, you know, understanding when there's an unwholesome mind state, because that's what right effort is about. Right effort is about not only uh, a continuous application of balanced energy, and I might say enthusiastic energy, but it's also this idea of when the mind has greed in it, how do we abandon the greed? When it has ill will in it, how do we abandon the ill will? And then that's one part of it, but another part of it is how do we prevent it from, from arising in the first place? And then there's the opposite part of that is how do we allow or bring mindfulness into being? How do we bring right effort into being? How do we bring steadiness of mind into being? And one of the most important aspects of this whole thing is how do we bring the ability to be vulnerable? Because that's what it takes to really, just think about it, each moment that arises is unknown. And so do we have the courage, do we have the trust, do we, do we have the willingness to allow it to arise as it is? and feel that we have the capacity that no matter what arises, we can create space between stimulus and response. So that even if we make an unskillful decision, we have the opportunity to correct it on the next go-round. And so this practice of mindfulness, uh, you know, I call it the power of mindfulness, and in the book I talk about the five superpowers. And mindfulness is just one of them. So I just talked about mindfulness, but the fourth aspect of mindfulness I didn't or the fifth is this fourth is appropriate attention. What to pay attention to? What's important? What's relevant? So if we talk about um, something like uh, that has nothing to do with the current experience and how we are observing experience, like if we want to say uh, that um, we're focusing on what's the meaning of life. 
let's say, instead of focusing on what's going on here and what am I supposed to be doing? What's the most skillful thing for me to do? How can I be in the moment and allow the moment to speak to me? And then in that moment with the sati or the mindfulness and the wisdom or clearly knowing, you know, what is skillful, what is unskillful, clearly knowing how the mind-body process works, clearly knowing when there's uh, anger in the mind, when, when there's ill will, that we're going to be unskillful. The thoughts are going to be unskillful. We're not going to be seeing clearly that, that ill will is, is a hindrance and that when it hinders our ability to see clearly and to be in the moment and to be uh, steady. So this whole idea of, of thinking about mindfulness as a way of just being able to see things, stay focused on the, on the task at hand, but it has to be supported by steadiness of mind or concentration, right, effort. So it takes effort to keep the mind on the object. I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> that the mind has a mind of its own. <laughs> and the way we come back to it is really important. It's called right effort. If we come back like, what's wrong with you? Oh, this, shouldn't be doing this? That's not the right effort. There's, there's some, either some greed or some hatred in that one. It's not, so can we come back with, with generosity, with compassion, with goodwill, and come back and just say, okay, I'm back. You know, no worries. Just come back and start over again. It's just like a lot of these electronic devices. Sometimes we don't know what's happening with them. You turn them on and turn them off, they reboot themselves, and they're fine. We work like that. We can, we can if we don't like the way things are, we can start over. Just step back and say, okay, let me come at it again with a different energy. And so this idea of mindfulness, of just these qualities of steadiness of mind, you know, mirror mind, uh, not forgetting or remembering what is skillful, what is unskillful, and understanding that when I talk about the superpowers, we call them the spiritual powers because our basic dilemma is a lack of power or a lack of the power to be courageous or to be present for life as it shows up. So because of trust, you have to be vulnerable. And it's hard to be vulnerable when we're not feeling like we're strong enough to be vulnerable. So this idea of, and I'll give you an example. When I was writing this book, I could swear to you I never had faith. I was so far out of my comfort zone, I wasn't feeling no kind of faith or trust. And then I said, well, what's up with this, George? You know, wise reflection, you know, where did my faith go? You know, I know Diana Ross wrote a song, Where Did I Love Go? I'm saying, where did my faith go? I don't have it right now. And then I realized, George, that's what the five spiritual powers are about. Mindfulness helps cultivate faith or courage. And that the faith has to be balanced with wisdom or clearly knowing. Because if, and part of the problem was I, was, I, had, a lot of, I had a lot of wisdom, but I didn't have enough faith to balance it. And mindfulness teaches us that. So now I reflect on, okay, George, so you were a heroin addict and now you're not. And you were able to overcome that. So where's the faith from that, knowing that you can create space between stimulus and response, and in that space, this is what Victor Franco says, within the space between stimulus and response is where our power is, our power to choose, our power to transform. So I've done that. So... I had to reflect on that. And how about my past good karma or my past morality or generosity? I've been generous. Thinking about this, when I graduated from my high school, my, my principal gave 
me a scholarship, but I got a full scholarship, so I gave it back to him. I said, use it for somebody else. Now, back in the day when I was hanging around with Kuna Gang doing the drugs, that's what I call it, Kuna Gang and Joe College, I was two people at once. And the day I was Joe College, at night I was Kuna Gang. And so Kuna Gang was saying, dude, we could have bought a lot of drugs with that money. But, but my, my inner innocence was to give it back because somebody else needed it. So now I reflect on that. Instead of reflecting on it and saying, you were a sucker, I look at it and say, well, that was really generous, man. And, and you know, karma, I was planting seeds for generosity to come from that. And so, so this wise reflection, reflecting on our past morality, uh, the positive part of it, and then understanding it, that by doing that, the morality piece is really important because the morality piece creates the ability to be present, to be to do right effort, to do the right mindfulness, and, and to develop the steadiness of mind. So that when I talk about the Noble Eightfold Path, it's talking about right, right, right view and right intention. That's that's the wisdom piece. So we have initial wisdom that gets us started, which is cause and effect in the noble four, in the noble, four noble truths, which is suffering, the end of suffering, uh, uh, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the four and the eightfold noble path, which, I, which I'm talking about now, which is right, right um, view and right intention. And here's the interesting thing: we can practice right intention before we meditate. What's that? Intentions of non-harm, non-greed, non-delusion, or put positively. Renunciation, letting go, generosity, loving kindness, compassion, seeking to understand rather than to be understood. So we start to say, well, what is this? What is this mind-body process? How does it work? That we do that. And so we have initial understanding that gets us to the point where we're willing to say, okay, right view. If I have the right view, if I know that I'm not separate because the illusion of separateness or self-centered fear is where a lot of the suffering comes from. That if we realize that we are all connected and that when I do something to you, I'm doing it to myself. So we talk about right speech, right action, right livelihood. Because the word creates. So, and, and in sports, we talk about the inner dialogue. I work with female athletes, male athletes, and I remember saying to this one young lady, because her negative she has such negative self-talk. I said, you, you talk so badly to yourself that if I talk to your girlfriend like that, you would say, George, you can't talk to her like that. But you, you're dogging yourself. You're talking to yourself way worse than I could ever talk to you. And that creates a, a, a sense of, of you know, uh, self-image that's really, you know, if she's six foot four, when I work with basketball players, her self-image is probably five foot five. Because her negative self-talk is, so we create with the words. So right speech, you know, lying, you know, harsh speech, slanderous speech, idle chatter, those things create wars or create peace. Whether we speak them outwardly or think about them or we're saying it internally. So with the morality or the integrity training is to understand that when these unwholesome mind states arise, you you make the intention not to harm through word, thought, or deed. So right, right speech, right action, right livelihood. So in this practice, we sometimes they show up as the five uh, precepts, not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, 
not to um, engage in sexual misconduct and not to uh, take intoxicants because they, they hinder. And so this, this uh, ethical piece is really important. And the Buddha said in his time that somebody could be, you could be really happy if you just kept the five precepts. But it's hard to do that without the mental training, without the ability to hold things in mind, because whatever you hold in mind, that becomes your reality. So if you are walking around with the hate glasses on, I hate to tell you this, but no pun intended, uh, you're going to be seeing blue or red, and you're going to be hating. But if you have on the love glasses, then that's different. If you have on the wisdom glasses, that's different. But we don't even know we have them. And so the idea is understanding word, thought, and deed. So when, when these unwholesome mind states arise, we have to have a process that says, even though I feel like smacking him or smacking her, I'm not going to do it. Even though the word wants to come out and call him, tell him what I really think, I better hold it because once it goes, you can't take it back. And so when we start to see that and start to say, okay, so that creates the conditions for me to have right effort because I don't have re re regret on my mind or resentment on my mind or just feeling like, okay, I just robbed store 24 and I go home and sit and meditate and every time I hear a siren, I guarantee you I'm not peaceful. <laughs> or if we do, do somebody harm and then we're around and we're saying, I wonder if they know what we did. How can you be focused? And so it's this idea, not good or bad, it's about skillful, unskillful, wholesome, unwholesome. Are we creating more harmony or are we creating more stress or, or suffering for ourselves and others? And so that's the, that's the ethical piece that a lot of people don't really relate to, that you need them all. You need the wisdom piece, you need the ethical piece, and the piece that we always talk about is, they call it concentration, but I like the word mental discipline, which is right effort right mindfulness and right concentration, and they need each other because you have to make the effort to be mindful, but you have to have trust to make the effort. So I talked about the five spiritual powers, and it's interesting because three of them are in the, are in the, um, the mental training piece, the effort, mindfulness, and concentration are three of the spiritual powers. So they're really, really important. They keep showing up there keep showing up different places and so understanding that they support each other and that all eight of those things, right understanding, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, they were all interconnected. They're non-linear. It's not linear. You go through one, two, or three. No, each time you, we deal with one, it, it supports the other. And so just to give you a picture, not to confuse you, but all of these things have to be integrated and worked at the same time or at some point we have to understand it. So the spiritual powers of, of cultivating confidence or faith or trust and balancing it with wisdom and clearly knowing and then effort being balanced by steadiness of mind or poise that these things is what mindfulness helps cultivate and balance and they in turn help mindfulness. And then that spiritual powers help us to deal with the eight four noble path. Does this make any sense? I don't want to talk much more than that, but basically in the nutshell, I came to all of this because, not because I was seeking enlightenment. I hate to disillusion people. I, I have what I call the AOF method of motivation. And excuse my uh, harsh language, ass on fire. <laughs> That's how I got here.
because I was using drugs and I was addicted to drugs. I was a, a functional um, substance abuser, but I got to the point where I was, it was, I was too tired to keep, I was too tired to keep being sick and tired. So anyway, uh, I found 12-step recovery, and then when I got in recovery, I had chronic pain, and the HMO that I was involved in with uh, had a program called Managing Stress, and a woman by the name of Joan Borisenko uh, was a teacher, and so she taught us how to meditate, how to do mind-body modalities like um, yoga and, and tai chi, and also how to read books about the mind-body process, psychology, philosophy, Zen, Vipassana, you name it. It was all kinds of stuff. And me being the recovering perfectionist that I am, I read every book on that list. And I'd say, coming up on, uh, it'll be 31 years sobriety next July, um, July 30th. Thank you. And I read over a book a week for those 31 years. Not to mention the meditation and stuff. So I realized when I got clean that, you know, just seeking how to deal with my stress of chronic pain took me beyond that and took me into the realm of transformation, took me into the realm of what I call a joyful journey of self-discovery. And so when I got clean and I found the practice and then I just, like I said, being a recovering perfectionist, I learned, I studied it, and then I started teaching it. And and it, it led me to where I am now. And the interesting thing is, I go to these centers like this, and most people don't really know who I am or where I came from. They heard my name because I work with MJ and those other folks, because that gets people's attention when they're elite, uh, performing at elite level, and they say, well, who, what are they doing? Who, how's he helping them? So that, that gives you a lot of uh, fame and notoriety, but of course, in this practice, we have uh, uh, what we call the eight worldly conditions, so fame and defame. So one reason I have been in the in the closet all these years because I don't believe that fame stuff. And and so, but then being attached to not believing the fame stuff is not skillful anyway. This is a this is a path of balance. So I, unfortunately, how no matter how uncomfortable it is to say, yeah, I'm I'm bad. I, you know, they acknowledge that, not bad, bad meaning good, you know, you know what I mean. So anyway, <laughs> so anyway, it's just this, this idea that this practice is, and this is what I talk about in the book, and it was hard because I didn't want to do it that way. I didn't want to self-disclose because, you know, somebody asked me, what does it feel like writing a book? I said, it felt like running in Times Square naked. <laughs> it's very vulnerable and... And, you know, and it's like, and, you know, there's a good reason with that. You know, they stoned the Buddha and they crucified Jesus Christ. So getting out there is not, you know, doesn't appeal to me sometimes. But I use Greek mythology once again to get over that because I thought of Prometheus. And I don't know if you folks know about Prometheus, but he brought fire and he brought medicine to mankind. And he, he went to, I think it's Mount Tartarus. He was chained to the mountain and every every morning the buzzards would come and eat his liver and then it would grow back at night and do it again. And I have a liver ailment, so that's pretty interesting. So then I realized that Hercules freed him. So I said, okay, well maybe somebody will free me if I just do it anyway. And that's what I did and, I, and the community, I can't tell you 
I think the biggest joy of this book really um, is that the community um, element of it is like a talking stick. Now I get to go out and talk about this and my teachers and other people, I think they're happier about the book than I am. So they've been bugging me for 20 years. When are you going to write a book? When are you going to write a book? Now it's written and they're so happy and I'm happy too. But it's amazing that, that it's, it's like mudita, appreciative joy. And just like you folks that live in this part of the country, uh, it's easy for you to have mudita for the, the Golden State Warriors because they won. <laughs> now, the Cleveland Cavaliers had won and I said to you, you should have sympathetic joy for them. I think you all would be hating me a little bit. Or at least disappointed in my, my opinion. But that's what Mudita is about. It's about, you know, it doesn't matter who wins, just, you know, through their karma they were able to achieve. And so you can see these, I'm all over the place, but the thing is these, <laughs> these teachings have been really powerful for me in terms of me transforming my life and, and helping others transform theirs. Because to be a mindful athlete, you have to be a mindful person. And when I teach mindfulness, I teach it in the context of the Eightfold Noble Path, where there's training in wisdom, training in ethical conduct, and training in mental discipline. So I won't say much more to that, because I'd rather listen to your questions so that I can give you answers. But it's, it's a wonderful path to be on. And I tell you, it's joyful for me because I don't have to get up and, and do drugs three or four times a day just to be just to be normal. And that's that's been 31 years ago or whatever, but sometimes it's hard for me to believe that that happened. But that's why it's easy for me to be joyful. Because when I look at where I was versus where I am now, and and I've done all the things to get you high. There's nothing like this high I got now. Can't touch it. Not even close. And I ain't trying to get high. That's what's crazy about it. <laughs> it's like what I tell my, my athletes. I said the best way to find yourself is to forget yourself. I told Kobe once, I said the best way to score is to not to try to score. And he did really well <laughs> by that. And he reminded me, yeah, I remember you told me that. I never forgot that. And so it's this thing about somehow training ourselves in being still and knowing, and then allowing things to happen. And by allowing things to happen, things happen much better than we could have imagined. And so this practice of, is really helpful in getting, instead of calling it anatta or not self, or Nietzsche, anatta, impermanence, not self, suffering, I like to look at it as the illusion of separateness. We are not separate, we are connected. We are all one interbeing, as Titnan Han talks about. That, you know, call me by my true names. You know, I am all of those folks, the perpetrator, the victim, everyone, that we have the capacity, or we have the two wolves inside of us. One is love, one is hate, and the one we feed is the one that we meet. It's the one that people meet. And so I'll just leave it like that, but I'm just really um, happy to be here and we'll open it up for questions. Okay.
Hi. Um, just, it's just wonderful the way that you take these teachings and apply them in such a way that's comprehensible and, um, and active. And so one question I have is, what about kind of affirmations that you say to yourself? Is that part of right thinking? Is that useful? Do you need to go quiet? Or is it good to um, kind of meditate and repeat things that are possibilities that are, are good? You know, yes, it's, it's in line with right intention. It, it's, so it's, it's interesting because it goes back to, and I have a little thing here, Einstein said the most important question we have to answer, this is what the trust factor is, whether the universe is safe or, or not, friendly or not. And if it's unfriendly, then we're going to use all of our technology, our resources to either keep people out or to destroy what, what we're threatened by. And if it's neither friendly or unfriendly, then it's like a toss of the dice and that it doesn't matter what we do. And, but if it's friendly, then we're going to use our resources, our understanding to understand it and us. And it's through understanding how things are, how things work, how we work, our mind-body process, that we, we can, down we're on a path of discovery and we have the joy of discovery and that we actually uh, are relating to life as, because it's friendly. Because whatever you believe becomes your reality. And so that, that part, what Einstein said, is really, it's, it's really fundamental. Because a lot of times when we go through this stuff, uh, when we transform, like when I transformed, I had the dizziness of freedom. There was a lot of anxiety there, and there was a tendency to be with the devil I know rather than the devil I don't know. And so it takes something. So you have to believe that, you know, in this practice, we take refuge in the Buddha, you know, who is a person uh, like us, and we all have Buddha nature or Christ consciousness, or I like to talk about the the the, the Masterpiece inside. Uh, when um, Michelangelo, Michelangelo was was asked, "How does he create these masterpieces out of these blocks of marble?" and he said, "All I do is chip away to get to the masterpiece that's already inside." So if we have that understanding that we already have the masterpiece, the Buddha nature, the Christ consciousness. Now that's a different energy, rather than somebody's got to fix us or there's something wrong or original sin. As you will not to pick on a religion or anything, but that's a, that's a mind state. And coming from that mind state, you're always in sin. So you understand what I'm saying? And so it's, it's so whatever it is, it's an affirmation, but it's also how about just seeing that when you have a love in your heart that you, you're able to do things, you're able to feel connected, and that that's the affirmation, is somehow getting into that love space so if that means saying I am lovable or having an affirmation. But here's the interesting thing about affirmation. You can say it, but if you don't believe it, it's not going to work. <laughs> Wayne Dyer wrote a book, you will see it when you believe it. So you have to believe, you know, and if you want to talk about quantum physics and you have all these waves of possibility, obviously if you keep that thought in mind, then the collapse of the wave function is going to be consistent with that with that uh, intention. And there's, there's a guy, Jeffrey Schwartz wrote a book called The Mind and the Brain, and he talks about dealing with obsessive compulsive disorders, and they have this four-step process where 
it's it's known. It's called quantum. Yeah, uh, attention, the quantum of attention or something like that. So when you have a thought in mind, by holding that thought in mind, and William James talks about it in his his book when he talks about the effort, volitional effort is the effort of attention, that if you hold something in mind, then you're going to have the, the, the result of it because the, the neurotransmitters are going to fire consistent with that thought because thoughts have images, but they also create secretions of of, of um, neurotransmitters. So the hold it in mind is important. So when you have a obsessive compulsive disorder, you're saying go, go wash your hands, go wash your hands, go wash your hands, and the image is there. And the training is to change, to refocus, you know, they call it, to relabel, okay, you know, it's just a malfunction, and then to reattribute it to some chemical imbalance, and then to refocus. So instead of focusing on washing hands, you focus on going to the garden. And if at first, it's the challenge. This is where right effort needs to happen because you keep doing it, but it, you're going to keep going to the garden because that mental habit is stronger than the go wash your hands. I mean, go to the garden versus go wash your hands. But with effort and mindfulness and steadiness and just practicing application, which, which is right effort, is, is the continuous balanced application of energy, but enthusiastically, then what happens is all of a sudden you're going to the garden instead of washing your hands. And so this is a quantum event in the sense that, that by your intention and attention, you actually collapse what they call the wave function so that instead of having all these possibilities, the one that you have is based on your consciousness and what you hold in your consciousness has everything to do with what happens. That's why right effort and right intention is so important because that creates the whole stage for the actual physical uh, manifestation, if that makes any sense. So can I just ask one? So then <clears throat> it sounds like so there's a val value um, in manifestation, kind of like some of the Deepak Chopra stuff, you know, manifesting success, manifesting right. whatever, keeping that thought in your head as you meditate, as well as mindfulness in terms of just yeah, keeping just your mind mindful. empty and focusing yeah. on the breathing. So right. they're, they're both can work. Right. This thing about this way. Right now, there's, there's thought patterns that are happening that are taking you to places. But if you're not aware of them, then you're not going to see, okay, when I think this way, this is where it takes me. This is what the practice is about. So I like to say, if you don't know who you are, you could end up being anybody. <laughs> and if you don't know where you want to go, you can end up going anywhere. So it's really important to understand how we think, what we feel, and, and what our beliefs are. Because those things are, are being expressed in the immediacy of experience in a mechanical, habitual way, without our permission on some level, because we're not, we're not present to, to them. We don't understand how it manifests for you individually. So the affirmation is fine, but it's really important to understand that you have to accept that the affirmation is possible for it to work. If that makes any sense. Oh, no, totally. Yeah, totally. okay. Thank you. So you said um, if we project, uh, hold on. Whatever you do to someone else, you do to yourself. Yes. Right? Um, so let's say you're thinking, some, I want to say something really mean to you right now, mm -hmm. but I choose not to say it. 
but I had the thought of what the mean thing that I was going to say. So mm-hmm. now the, the thought is sort of just bubbling in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that tends to eventually will build up and it creates this a lot of internalized anger. So people end up releasing that anger in either small ways mm-hmm. by like being using their words that are harsh or mm-hmm. physically being harsh, mean, angry, whatever, or, you know, big ways, killing people, doing crimes, mm-hmm. whatever. So what are mindful or um, not harmful ways of releasing that anger that you have created it, it, in yourself? Yes, yes. We talk about it in the in right effort, which is when you notice that... Uh, angry thought is present, there's a process that you can go through. One thing is, there's, there's a number of ways. One thing you can do is just recognize that that unwholesome thought has consequences. So you think about, okay, if I say that to him or if I do this, that's going to be unwholesome or it's going to lead to a result I don't want. Okay, so then the, the fact is, so it's important to see how it arises and how you can abandon it or, you know, renunciate it. And how you do that is, just notice, okay, there's an angry thought, but we don't see it that way. Instead of saying, oh, there's a thought, and it's not really mine, it's just there. But when it becomes mine, that's when it's a problem. And not only that, but if you get rid of it, then it's like, well, who am I? Because it's, you identify with it. That's the problem, not the thought. And we know this from, from people who have intrusive thoughts. It's not the intrusive thought they create the anxiety. It's the belief that they can't control them. So the, the fact that you have intrusive thoughts, but you know how to, to just let them be there, like I said, just let it be there and not give it energy or not identify with it. So you start to create space between stimulus and response, uh, stimulus and response, so that when the thought comes up, you can just see it as an event. And so, you're, so it's, it's important to get to the point where you're aware of thinking and not lost in thinking. You feel, you get what I'm saying? And so it's just creating space. And mindfulness, this practice creates space. So I call it the salt test. So you have uh, eight, the glass of water and, and you put a tablespoon of salt in there, it's going to be salty. But if you create a bigger container with water, that same tablespoon of salt is not going to have the impact. So this is with spaciousness or just letting things be and not identifying with them, which the mindfulness can help us to see. But part of it is really interesting because seeing it, Seeing how you get attached to it and see how it, it does that, that could be helpful if you can see that. So one thing is to see the consequences. The other thing is, is to divert your attention to something else like, okay, why don't I look at something positive about George that I like? You, you get what I'm saying? And then the third thing is, is, is to, so you, you, you focus on something else. But the other thing is, at some point when you get enough mindfulness and wisdom, you turn towards the thought itself. And you say, well, what is this? Where is it coming from? And if Gandhi is right with his formula that says your beliefs become your thoughts, your thoughts become your words, your words become your actions, your actions become your habits, your habits become your values, your values become your destiny. So that's an equation. So any one of those things, if you go in and upset that apple cart, it's going to, the whole house of cards is going to come down. But really thinking about what we, our belief is, because a lot of times we don't know we have beliefs, just like you go to a talk or, you, or you're talking to somebody and it's over and you're pissed off and you don't know why. 
and then you realize that you didn't get what you asked for, but you didn't really ask for anything. We call it passive-aggressive. But you didn't know that you had an expectation until it didn't get met. But then you get mad at the person and say, they shouldn't know my mind. How come they can't know? They should know what I'm talking about. And it's all up here. So you get what I'm saying? And so we start to see that our beliefs are so powerful. Here's how powerful our beliefs are, that with multi multiple personality disorder, you have some people who, when they're in one personality, are diabetic, and when they're in another one, they're not. So you figure, you explain that one to me. So what that says is your mind creates your physical experience. And so we, we understand that. And it could be one, one personality is, needs glasses and the other one doesn't. But that's all the consciousness, state of consciousness. So if you look at consciousness as at each state of consciousness, there's certain um, options that are available to us. And so one of the things I had to do with my substance abuse is change my level of consciousness so that the level of consciousness that I'm at now using drugs and alcohol are not options. That makes any sense. That's why they talk about connecting to higher power or whatever is higher consciousness and because at that level of consciousness, the same choices I've been making I'm going to continue to make because I'm not seeing clearly what, what the consequences of my thoughts, my feelings, and my behavior are. That makes any sense? Yes. Okay. Um, you got a hand in the back there. Thank you very much. Can you hear? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to tell you about a job that I took. It's a job that's um, for many years. It's called being a parent. And before I was a parent, I actually was getting the thing about spirituality really connected. And then I had children. I had twins. I was blessed with my daughters at 45 years old, wanted them. But I'm wondering how to deal with the fact that I have this spiritual program that I want to teach them. And they want a cell phone. And they want an iPod. And I keep saying to them that the truth is just be still. And you know, trying to teach them that. And yet they're, they're turning 12. I've been able to hold it for them not to have those objects because I, I, I just, I think there's a place for them, but they're two girls and they feel a need to have all these things. So I'm wondering about what to do with myself when I get still and they get consumer and I keep holding those, those reins and how to, how to be with that because I end up getting angry. Mm -hmm. How could that be? I'm teaching them spirituality on the inside. I'm pissed off because I wanted two enlightened children to raise. And I so, really felt that I did my work. I deserve to have two enlightened children. Okay. They're not. Okay. So, so let me make sure I, I hear this. So, so you have clinging and grasping to how they are, right? Is that what I'm hearing? What you have wanting. You want them to be other than what they are, right? They have a side to them that is really amazing. But when it's but see, time to you, go you know, shopping. I hear that, but did you hear what I just said? I, I did. Okay, I but did. you're trying not to hear me, right? No, I'm hearing you. I just oh, wanted no, no, you to let, know they've got that side too. You know, what I'm saying to you is, and, and I'm not saying because you have the toughest job on the planet, so I'll say that right off the bat. Thank you. But the, whatever you resist persists. And if it was me, when somebody told me not to do something, I couldn't wait to do it. 
Okay, so what I'm saying is each person has to work out their, that's why right effort is so difficult. Each person has to work it out for themselves. And if you want something more than they do, then you're going to have burnout, you're going to have resistance because you're taking responsibility for them and, and they have their own responsibility. And on some level, just seeing how the more you control, the more you need to control and the more things get out of control. And so the reason you don't have spirituality because the cause of suffering is grasping, clinging, and ignorance. So you have this idea of what, what, what their serenity should be, and they got a different idea about that. <laughs> and so now you have to understand that on some level, or what I usually say is, how's that stuff working out for you? <laughs> uh, it's not. So you got to become willing to change and look at, okay, well, what is this? And look at why you need to control them and just look at, well, because this is more about you than them. It, you know, I'm just, just saying because I, I've been there. I'm I'm a, a adult child of an alcoholic, and, and I used to try to control my siblings and everybody, everything else, and I was worn out most of the time, and I moved out of it, and they got better when I got out of it. And some of them didn't, but I'm not responsible for them. I got to focus on me and create the space. And maybe, and I know this to be true on some level, maybe they're watching you more than they're listening to you. And so maybe you have to be the change that you want them to be without trying to impose your will on them because that's what it sounds, that's what they feel. And, and what happens, I've seen that happen in other places where I think Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was talking about, she's working with this doctor, 65 years old, and, he, and he's, he's devastated, and he says, you know, he was a doctor, but all he wanted to do was be a pianist, but his mother wanted him to be a doctor, so he lived his whole life being somebody who he wasn't. And so it's just like, I was just talking to somebody, a friend of mine, they said they have a child that's not interested in, in academics at all, they just like, want to do art. And so they decided, you know, after struggling, they said, just let them do the art and see what happens. You know, because maybe there's a path there, because we're saying that if they do what they, their heart tells them to do, it's going to be bad. And what I know and what I learned from Joseph Campbell is to follow your bliss. And if, and if you don't get what you want, at least you'll get bliss. <laughs> so that's not, a bad, that's not a bad option, I think. You get what I'm saying? And so part of it is just talking to them and really seeing what their passion is. And maybe that's the way to get them to live a certain way by letting them feel their passion and, and really listening to. That's why I'm saying mindfulness is just letting them speak to you without you interpreting what they're doing and, and not hearing them because it sounds like you're not even hearing what they have to say because you, are, you, you, you have all this noise and clutter in there about what should be and all that other stuff that makes any sense. Thank you. Okay. And I apologize if I come off hard, but it's with a lot of love. <laughs> Hi. Um, I guess I'm a basketball fan, and I'm just, I don't know if you like these kind of questions or not, but I'm curious uh, how you met Phil Jackson and also maybe how you two work together to develop not just certain players, but a strong team. 
yes. getting people to work together uh, well. Well, we don't have enough time to go through all that, but okay. I'll, 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 I'll give you... Well, what happened was when I started doing this, this stuff and I ended up at the Center for Mindfulness working with John Kabat-Zinn and, and he um, still does a training at Omega for healthcare professionals, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And in 1993, uh, Phil Jackson's wife of the, at the t of the time, Joan Jackson, she was taking this course. And so, of course, John is always bragging on me, which, you know, saying, okay, George does this, he's doing this. And, and then Dr. J was his roommate in college, and so he's been around the pro game. And June says, we want him to work with the, the team because they had just won their third NBA championship, a third consecutive NBA championship. And Phil wanted to bring in somebody to help them deal with the stress of success. And so he, he asked me to come in. And so we talked about it maybe around this time of year, July, August, whatever it was, June, July, whatever. And then in the interim, Michael Jordan's father got murdered and he resigned. So when I went there in October 1993, they were in full-blown crisis. And so one of my tasks was to get the team to see this is a crisis. And in the crisis, you have, it has two meanings. Danger, which we know, but opportunity. And so getting them to look at the opportunity aspect of it and see about everybody raising their game or seeing it as a challenge. And so, you know, that was in 1993, and 22 years later almost, we still continue to work. So obviously we have a certain philosophy, and, and the way Phil works is the way I pretty much teach now is, like, I'm with the team, I'm watching them and, you know, because you can see, like Yogi said, you can see a lot just by observing, Yogi Berra. Uh, so a lot of times, just watching them and seeing and letting the situation speak to me, then I figure out what I need to do. And Phil is intuitive, so we'll be hanging around. He'll say, okay, George, go up and talk to the team. And I have to go up there and, and just talk to them. And of course, I'm taking things in and we're having conversations. But that's how we develop our, our relationship, whereas it's, it's, you know, we just, you know, we have the same values, but it's all, also he just lets me do what I do. And, uh, you know, so, and even when I wasn't working with them, technically when they used to come to Boston, I used to work with them uh, then, and it was always, they come in town, we have like a two-minute conversation. I'd have a two-minute conversation with Kobe and Fisher and some of the coaches, and then I had to get up in front of the team and and give them a teaching. So I've been doing that all my life. I actually was in Toastmasters and we had a section of that called Table Topics. So I've been practicing this for a lot of years. Just give me a subject, I have to get up there and talk about it. Or just, but to me it's the mindfulness and the wisdom that helps me because I'm with what's in the room and I let the situation speak to me about what I need to attend to. Does that make any sense? And of course, working in all these different domains like Yale at Yale, you got to do that because you have no idea what you're gonna what you're gonna find when you walk through the door. Of course, I can say that about people going home at night too. <laughs> you have no idea what you're gonna get when you go through the door, but that's where your best work is, and that's when your butt is dragging. <laughs> so that's a good one. <laughs> um, I just wanted to say I, I appreciate um, your discussion about how you came through your addiction, and I'm. I'm not dealing with addiction issues, but I realize that I'm, I'm involved in, I'm sort of, I feel entrapped in a lot of long-standing patterns that don't yield the results that I would like. 
and I realize I don't have a lot of trust that there, that change is possible, even mm -hmm. though I greatly desire that. And I'm just wondering if you can say something about how to believe that change is possible when you feel really burdened by your, um, I don't know, your, your current situation yes. of, of repeating patterns that aren't, that are causing suffering. Yeah. Well, I'll share a story with you maybe that will shed some light on it. I was April 1st, 1984. I was home and I was miserable with my addiction and everything. And, and I was feeling like a lot of those times I felt like, well, maybe I should just get enough drugs and OD and be done with it or something like that. Or just how do I get out of this? Because it, it felt like nowhere or, need, uh, or um, I think as Roka talks about uh, you know his he has um, stone in front of his face and everywhere he turns it's just stone and um, so it's feeling like there's no place to turn and so my friend came who I used to get high with and he wasn't high he wasn't high he was looking good and he said let's go to a meeting of course I think it's interesting it was April Fool's Day he took me to my first <laughs> AA meeting but I went there and I saw people and I saw him clean and I used to get high with him so I know he was a dope fiend, an alcoholic. And he was clean. So I said, okay, let me go see what's, what's up with that. I'm going to see, you know, so there was a ray of hope. There was a slither of hope there and then going and seeing and then exploring, well, how are they doing this? How does this work? So. In the practice, we call the seven factors of enlightenment. The first one is, I won't go through all of them, but I'll just give you the, the main, the first three. The first one is mindfulness. The second one is investigation of dhammas or investigation of stuff. So when you have doubt and you don't know, you ask questions, you find people who are doing or where you were and are no longer there. In this practice, we don't call them, we call them teachers, but we also call them good friends. So you find somebody, you get on the internet, you go to somebody, whatever, and you ask questions and you in, investigate and explore, how do I do this? And one suggestion I will make is focusing on the future you want, not on what you have and how to get out of that. Makes sense, it's like the positive and all of this, the research says this um, guy by the name of um, Sean Accord wrote a book called happiness advantage. And 90% of our long-term happiness is predicated on how the brain interprets our experience. 10% is just external, but the other 90%. So the, the proverbial question is, if, is the glass half empty or half full? Both are right. Being half empty, you're going to be scarcity. You're going to come from, you're going to be in the survival mode. If you see it as half full, you're going to be in the proactive, the fighter mode. And we know from from the work they do with cells, a cell cannot be in uh, the survival and proactive mode at the same, and the growth mode at the same time. It's either in a, in a survival mode or growth mode. It can't be in both. So that tells us that if we're in the growth mode, we're probably doing okay. If we're in survival mode, then good luck with that one because that means the reptilian brain is going to be controlling everything and the amygdala and the cerebral cortex, all the stuff you know you won't have access to. Does it make sense? Yeah. Yeah, thank you, George. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was coming here to Spirit Rock. You know how you, uh, you uh, 
group up. I forget what the word is. Uh, you know, you just a uh, carpool. And uh, it was a woman that got in. She sat in the back. I was in the uh, passenger seat. Somebody else was driving. And no sooner was she in than she started telling very dark, very negative stories about people that were doing this to her or doing that to her, landlords, boyfriends. I mean, she was going on and on. And it was very surprising. I thought, wow, she's really kicking it out. <laughs> and then I, I felt that I had to say something. I said, gosh, you don't sound like a very happy camper. And she says, what makes you say that? <laughs> so in keeping with the 12-step program, the, the very first thing that, and I will argue this in anybody if you wanted to argue with me, uh, that identifies us as being uh, human beings, humans, uh, is vulnerability. And vulnerability is a very deep, emotionally felt, deeply seized thing. And it is the thing that will give you humility. Just recognize that something is wrong. What makes you say that? So, I mean, again, while we're meditating here, I, you have that component of meditation that leads to a much a certain kind of equanimity, all very nice. Then I think there's an, a, a, a meditation that should enable you to open yourself up to what is deeply felt, what is deeply uh, rooted. And uh, we will find, because all our pain and suffering from when we're little babies tells us the same thing. We're vulnerable. Mm -hmm. We bruise easily. Our feelings get hurt. We die young. Uh, I think that's a beginning. I just wanted to, to uh, share that with you. Uh, yeah. Because it is the place to go. Uh, I, I know one can uh, meditate in a kind of willy-nilly sort of way. But I, I think it's a place to go. And I think it's in, it's in keeping with insight meditation. Because mm -hmm. insight and energy can come. And thing will open up for you. Make you cry. Yeah. And there's a lot of love in that also. A lot of love. Take care of your mother's child. That would be you. Okay. Yes. Well, you can't have trust without being vulnerable. And, and the vulnerability is, but it's interesting because I say this all, all the time. It's like there's suffering and there's no where it's a human conditioning, but then there's the mental anguish on top of the suffering. The Buddha used to talk about the two like if you know you throw dots, he says the two dot theory, the first dot gives you pain, but then the second thought is the fact that you don't think it should be happening. <laughs> you know, it's like Woody Allen said, he doesn't mind dying, he just doesn't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> I think we're kind of like that. We say, yeah, you know, you know, we get old, we, we're born, we get old, we die, but you know, that works for you, but for me it's not gonna happen like that. It's gonna be different. And so when we accept things as they are, that's what this uh, keep coming back to, the mirror mind. Once we see this there and we accept, okay, it's there, then what's my relationship to it? So if I say, well, I'm a human being and this is the human condition, then it's not me being victimized. 
that this is, this, is, this is what happens, but I can relate to it in a way where there's space between stimulus and response. It doesn't mean I have to like it, but I'm not reacting to it and fighting it to the point where I'm creating more, more pain and suffering. And so you're absolutely right, because people, especially if you just do concentration, and you can be really good, because concentration, what it does, it, it puts all the hindrances when you get to the first jhana or you get to access concentration, it puts all the, all the hindrances in abeyance. In other words, you don't feel them. But I've, I've been on, I don't need to take people's inventory, but I've been on long-term retreats. Let's just speak about me. I get real concentrated and be, be blissful. Then I get out of it and I'm a bigger fool than I was before with more energy. <laughs> so there has to be some component that talks about suffering and the end of suffering and then the morality piece. You know, what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling, what I'm behaving, that's really important. So you're absolutely right, because we can get, uh, Martin Buber talks about it in his, in his book, The Way of Man, uh, we develop hideouts for ourselves. And you can have a hideout here. Well, you're kind of here, but you're kind of not here. You, you can be really good at repressing thoughts or, or keeping them, you know, out of our mind. And, and Vipassana meditation is about... And that's why I said when I talked about earlier, when I talked about mindfulness, skillful and unskillful, suffering and the end of suffering. See where we're suffering. If we keep thinking we ain't suffering, that's, that's an illusion. There's suffering all around us. You don't have to look far, but it's not like being identified with it. But see, oh, I suffer when I cling and I grasp when I don't understand when I'm ignorant. But if I understand and I stop clinging and I let go, like Ajahn Chah said, I let go a little bit, I have a little peace. I let go a lot, I have a lot of peace. I let go completely, I have complete peace. Light bulb goes on, uh-oh, maybe there's something there. Why don't we think about that one? And in my own practice, as I, you know, because uh, self-disclosed, I had a lot of warrior energy when I came in here, so I was so greedy about being enlightened, I wanted it yesterday, and I'd be so trying so hard to give myself a headache and all that stuff. That was wrong effort. But when I just say, okay, George, man, you're making this way too complicated, dude. Just be still and know. Just allow things to happen and just notice and then decide if you're going to, how to be skillful with how you handle it. That's way too simple. We are complicated. To just say, when I said just sit and know you're sitting and breathing, that's enough. But if I say that to you, you say, yeah, George, that can't be enough because I, I really must have been stupid all my life if I believe that. And it's the existential guilt about, why didn't I know this before? <laughs> really silly. So we're going to keep doing the, the BS we've been doing because we don't want to appear stupid. <laughs> now, that's, that's, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? You know, the, the pride gets to the point where we're stupid about being stupid. Not the judge or skillful, being unskillful. And so when we start looking at it, because I look at my mind, there's no shame there, none, when it does stuff. And I just look at it, but then when I say, because this is what the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta on Four Foundations of Mindfulness says, is you contemplate. What contemplate means to look at repeatedly and to look at closely, but to look at it internally and externally. Now, I don't know if you noticed it, but we're really good at looking at somebody else and saying, they're whacked, <laughs> or they're tripping. But we can't see the same thing in us. 
But it's easy to say somebody else. And so you, you get what I'm saying? And so this is why the Buddha talks about doing internally and externally, seeing if it's true. So you can see somebody when they're, they're in a, you know, like you talked about, they're getting and they're dumping. They're in this, this suffering and they don't even know it because they think that's who they are. And on some level, that's how, they, how you see them because that's what they're presenting. But if they can step back and say, oh, I'm suffering, and hear what you're saying and say, okay, let me look at this. That's what Sangha can be helpful for. We have these blind spots. Somebody can say, okay, I trust him. He says that. Why don't I look at that and see if that's true? That could be really helpful. So I know I've been over time, so I'm going to have to stop now. But uh, I appreciate and that's why I wanted to have more time for the questions, because your questions, I learned so much from them, and they're really good. And I think this is what the practice is about, is how to make this practical and how to be able to, to apply it to daily life now. Not later, or do a retreat and say, okay, I'm going to retreat, I'm going to figure out how to do it this relationship. Well, good luck with that one. <laughs>